My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. And today I have the uh, privilege of connecting with uh, Elder Robert Gay. How are you? Just fine, Kurt. Great to be here with you. Yeah, I'm glad this worked out. And uh, now you are—you currently have emeritus status uh, as a general authority, and it's been uh, has it been a year or so since that happened. Just a little over a year, and we're doing great. It's uh, it's a wonderful thing to be emeritus. Uh, <laughs> and what have you? Uh, I mean, when people ask you what you've been doing lately, what how do you respond? I actually have been quite involved in. Um, in business and in our humanitarian uh, activities, which we do. In fact, I'm headed over to Ghana at the end of this week, where we uh, uh, have a lot of uh, different uh, oh, uh, NGO-type uh, activities that we're engaged in. Oh, great. Nice. And is it, if I remember right, Ghana is where you and your wife served as uh, mission leaders. Is that right? We do. We're mission presidents in, uh, mission presidents in Ghana. Sierra Leone in, in Liberia, and we have an NGO that uh, works in about five different countries in Africa, and and we also have a uh, a a college that we've uh, built there, and we've and we have an association with uh, University of Utah through that college. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's uh, maybe go back to the beginning of maybe just your developmental years and your faith development, your, as you were, you know, your professional development as well. Uh, what did your, uh, what did your parents do uh, for professionally as you were being raised? As I was growing up, my father was the uh, chief uh, executive officer for a, um, a fairly diverse um, holding company that was owned by a by a very wealthy person, privately held, one hundred percent shareholder, uh, a person by the name of Howard Hughes. Oh yeah, and and so I grew up in a in a very intense business world, to tell you the truth. And I also grew up. Uh, my 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 parents were uh, were engaged in uh, many things. Uh, uh, you know that that concerned the church. Uh, my dad was. Uh, 35 years on the uh, board of the Polynesian Cultural Center. He was a member of the general board of the Sunday School, and um, <clears throat> and also very active in. Uh, he's the national treasurer for the Boy Scouts of America and engaged in a lot of uh, uh, philanthropy works on its own. And the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which. Uh, which was instrumental in uh, actually developing the the whole genetic center and at University of Utah, uh, he was very engaged at BYU, um, uh, also. But uh, but that's sort of the yeah. background. It was a business world that I grew up in. So, would you say that, that his his career path inspired uh, your career path at all? No, it did just the opposite. 
Oh yeah. Uh huh. Uh, How so? As I as I watched everything that went on in the business world with my father, uh, it was the only disagreement I ever had with really with my father. I loved him. He was um, he was a he was a great person. He grew up in Provo, very dirt poor, uh, on the on the railroad tracks. Uh, down there at Second South, wherever they are on the west side. And um, his father was not a member of the church. And um, But my dad was, uh, was nicknamed the Plato Provo. He had a, he had a photographic memory. He, uh, had, he attended uh, Brigham Young University and was uh, uh, going back to Columbia to get a Ph.D., in um, in philosophy to come back and teach at BYU when Howard Hughes hired him as his driver for the oh, wow. uh, uh, and uh, and as he and Hughes got to know one another as the driver Hughes uh, talked him out of finishing his education and staying on and made him his chief of staff um, at the end of his summer time and he brought out all the what were then called the whiz kids from from uh, uh, from Detroit to build the Hughes Aircraft Company which became the leading uh, uh, electronics company at that time in the uh, in the world and you know my dad launched the first commercial communication satellite and um, and and things went on, but you know Hughes uh, became one of the you know his time you know one of the two or three wealthiest people in the world, and mm. uh, and the world was very complicated, and it became more so complicated when uh, uh, when he decided to go into the gaming industry in Nevada, and. Um, and that decision, and one that uh, taught me a great lesson in life, and maybe this would be helpful to, yeah, to your audience. That uh, that decision was one that really ended up having dramatic consequences for my family. Yeah, when Hughes decided to buy a casino, he called my father and told him of the decision because my dad was running the operations at the time. And, and he told, he said, Mr. Hughes, you know, I can't manage that for you. And he said, Oh, you don't have to worry about that. We're, we'll put a separate team in place and I know you won't do that. And, and, <clears throat> and that was fine, except for the, it became a real problem when, after he built out his, um, his whole network uh, there, the the operation became very infiltrated and corrupted in many ways, and and they had to go in and fire all the people that were there. Oh wow! And and uh, and we received as a family. Uh, this was about the time I I started uh, university at um, at I started my college work at BYU and ultimately graduated from University of Utah, but. Um, but this is, this was the time when, <clears throat> when 
when the when the all the death threats started and all the different things because of the the things that were going on in it uh, and and my you know my dad went to uh, two members of the first presidency I mean we we were and and asked them for their advice of what he should do, you know, he said, you know, I'm a member of the church. I don't run casinos. Uh, we've had to fire all these people. Now I've got to clean up the place. And he said, well, what should we do? And he said, and they said, and they, and they, and the advice that he got was literally just do the best you can. You know, uh, you didn't ask for it. You've been opposed to it. Uh, but it is part of the, the company that you have. And, just run them and clean them and run them the best you can. Hmm. And and my dad told me that he had a, um, you know, he, the voice of the Spirit told him he should probably just get out. But he felt very loyal to Mr. Hughes. I mean, he mm-hmm. they, they had struck a handshake agreement when he, finished his driver became chief of staff and and the handshake agreement was is that he would work for him it was a 24 7 type of arrangement and hughes kept his word on that uh, <laughs> i bet and uh and and his agreement was that he'd never have to report to anybody else in the organization and that hughes would take him through the organization he did he went from driver to ceo wow and um and and he felt very loyal for because it had opened up many doors for our family and many things and and he didn't feel like he could leave them but as a result this intense pressure of taking on Las Vegas and I can't even tell you the the vitriol that came out in the press and the attacks because they cut off all the people that were sucking the organization. And, and as I said, there were death threats, there was office break-ins, there was all sorts of things that went on that was a parade of horribles. It broke many of our family wow. members, and uh, and I decided I'd never go into business because of that. And, um, and the first lesson that my dad taught me out of that was, one, it doesn't matter who gives you the advice. It could be a member of the First Presidency. But he said, you always listen to the voice, what he called of the God within you, yeah. with the Spirit. Yeah. And always followed it. And my dad, and my dad just to his dying day, uh, made that one thing that he always just kept coming back to me, but he never forgave himself for all the things that happened. Mm. Uh, even though he was enormously successful, he just never forgave himself for having put the burden upon our family and having to, um, and, and, and it's the other thing you learn. You have to forgive yourself for mistakes. Yeah. I, I make and he, uh, he wouldn't. Um, he didn't. He wouldn't. He wouldn't go. He, he re- refused to go back and even attend my wedding in the temple. 
because right. um, he just felt that he'd let us down. Um, but and the and the second thing was he wanted me to he wanted me to get an MBA. So we're talking to probably some MBA students here. And, yeah, yeah. And and having watched what had played out in this whole thing, uh, I said I, I told myself I was never going to go into business. I was a straight A student, straight A's at BYU, straight A's at U, pretty much. I think I had a couple B pluses in art history or something like that. Yeah, but, but he was uh, still encouraging you to go the business yeah. route. Yeah, he thought, you know, he, he was very practical, having grown up very poor, very poor. Um, he just, he just, you know, you know, I came back, he, you know, he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I want to go, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go be <clears throat> teach institute or I'll go, uh, uh a psychiatrist or something you know i uh-huh. wasn't quite sure <laughs> he just didn't see that at all and uh, uh and i and it was a, a intense discussion and and i and i needed to know what what i wanted to do and one of the great passions i had was to help lift people out of poverty having having experienced or lived and traveled with my dad into many in different poor areas of the world through his business mm. It was a passion of mine, and so at the I, I, I transferred out of uh, BYU, uh, literally for a crazy thing. I mean, my wife and I we got married six months after I returned from my mission, and and um, and we needed money uh, to go to school, and I started a little business oh, wow. uh, at BYU, and it was uh, it was a business called uh, well, I I. I it was a distribution business that we'd taken over some of little things like hostess snack pies or what are little snack pies called cutie pies. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and I delivered routes. I delivered, I was selling 10,000 of them a week. Um, and putting just myself in, through school. Just in, uh, just like in the greater Utah area. Oh, wow. Yeah. You were yeah, the distributor. Yeah, grocery markets. I mean, yeah, yeah. Richie Smith from uh, Smith's Foods at the time was had returned from a mission. He gave me my first big break, my first big snack. Harmon's family at, uh-huh. at Harmon's, you know, took them all in. But we put them through all the hours since all the big chains and <laughs> all of them. And I found out that people might not drink a whole lot of coffee, but they'll eat a lot of sugar. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we, so I made a business and put it literally through school, but it was up in Salt Lake. And yeah. And I, I needed to be closer to where I could, uh, I could do that. So I transferred up to the U and, uh, and graduated from there. But, uh, but as I tried to figure out what to do, I, I, I was literally going to go to, um, I, uh, probably to, um, get a uh, degree in, um, you know, in, in it's become a, become a psychiatrist. And I uh-huh. just because I just thought it was a good way to help people. And, but, but my dad came and said, well, look, this is what I think you ought to do. And I can't convince you otherwise. And he said, why don't you just pray about it? And, and that was the same thing. You pray about what you're going to do. Yeah. 
And I prayed about it. And I found a program at Harvard that was that bridged this. It wasn't an MBA program; it was a doctorate program, and it was in economics and in business. You had to go get qualify for all the requirements of a PhD in econ, and you had to qualify for all the the requirements for a DBA at the at the business school in business. Uh-huh. And then you wrote a a joint thesis between the two schools. And I thought, well, I could go back there and become an economist and and go work at someplace like the World Bank or International Finance Corporation or USAID and, and help lift people out of poverty. And I and I applied and uh, and I got called back for an interview back there. It was a five hour interview. <laughs> wow. And it was uh, it was an incredibly intense interview. Um, and this was, this was, <clears throat> it was by, it was, the interview was done by the person who was, um, for those who are in finance, he was the godfather or the, the theoretical father of, uh, of what is called the capital asset pricing model. He'd done the mathematical equilibrium proofs of the, of the, of the model and, and, and the two people who uh, worked with him in developing it, Bill Sharp out of Stanford and uh, Franco Modigliani, I think, out of Chicago, won the Nobel Prize for it. And John Lintner, who interviewed me, uh, unfortunately, had died before the Nobel Prize was awarded or he would have been given the Nobel Prize in it. Oh, sure. Yeah. And for portfolio theory and all of that went with it. And, but he was all about math. And, uh, and I had sort of majored in math and statistics and economics and but it was intense and went through this and we as we were locking outside after the interview he he looked at me and he said uh, Bob this is the program where we bring everybody to Harvard who we want to have become our professors and uh and and this was the program Mike Porter, who developed all the business strategy models. Porter had gone through it, and Mike Spence, who won the Nobel Prize, uh, would become one of the leaders uh, in the program. And Jeff Sachs um, was was he and I were contemporaries, and he went through it. and And he said to me, "We only take these handful, but you're in." Oh, wow. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, you won't hear anything for months, but I make all the decisions here ultimately. <laughs> and, uh, and and I can tell you, you're in. Wow, I bet you weren't expecting that, home, right? No, just I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was just that. that uh, but it was then is where I heard that voice again. I said, and I heard it very distinctly, as you and I are just talking, you are to be a doctor of business not a doctor of medicine. Wow. And I didn't pursue, I didn't pursue anything else. And it made no sense to me because it was the last thing I wanted to do Mm. was to be associated with business because of everything that happened growing up. But I followed that voice. I wanted to help the poor. I wanted to, to work in, in, in healthcare and I, and, and anything but business. And, and ultimately, I got my degree. I, I taught at Harvard for a little bit. And 
then went out to McKinsey and Company. Uh, after I finished, I had so much in student loans, I needed to figure out how to pay them back. And so I left the university for a while, thought I'd come back and teach. And I went out to McKinsey to just pay off student loans. And, uh, and then I got a call uh, one day from uh, a headhunter to about a job opening down Wall Street. And it made a lot of sense to me. And I went down to Wall Street, thought I'd get some more experience, you know, come back ultimately and teach. And, and, then, and then I got a call from Mitt Romney one day to come to Bain Capital. And, uh, and all these things happened. But every day during this period of time, Kurt, I was saying my prayers every morning that this isn't what I want to do. Hmm. I don't want to be in business. But every day I became more successful. Every one of these little moves opened up new doors. And, uh, and I thought it was doing it, but at the same time I was praying not to do it. And... I never, ever, I kept, I, it was, it was amazing to watch the world change and, and, uh, and to earn the money that I was earning. And, and the first thing you learn is you're never worth the money that people are paying you. I mean, it was just, just you know, Wall Street's a crazy world and, yeah, and you can never, if you ever begin to believe that you're worth what somebody's giving you, you're crazy. Um, but I was being blessed in ways that I couldn't believe. And, and, but, but I was, I was literally playing not to go back. And, and then after 20 or so years, that's when I got a call to be a mission president at the very peak when I was at the top of my career. Uh -huh. I was asked by the Lord to leave it. And, and what I found is by looking back is that everything that I wanted to do in my life, help the poor, be engaged in, in helping those that are sick, afflicted, health, education, I was able to do it because I went into business, because it gave me the money. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we've been able to set up, you know, through Africa, we've, you know, in our NGOs, we've been able to touch lives of over 70, 80 million people. We've built schools all around. We've built health clinics. I mean, I've built university um, and uh, lifted many, many people. Yeah. And, and, it's, and, and, and it's a great lesson. I never kept a balance sheet because I didn't want to know what I was really worth. But at the same time, I wanted to be able to, to use that. And, and we did for many causes. But, but the Lord knows how to use you better than you do. It was my great lesson. Mm, in this. Yeah. Uh, he opened the door. I learned every lesson of business. I almost learned at my father and I was willing to throw that all away. And yet, it all came from the time I was a little boy, everything that I learned back into play as I went through these things. And, and it's just sometimes we think we know what's best for our lives, but unless we're really trying to guide them by the Spirit, we'll miss maybe what the Lord intends us to do or 
become and and then you got to be humble enough to put it all aside yeah when he asks you to do something else yeah and, and that's the great i guess those are the great lessons in my life wow, that's really powerful was there a moment like as you started down this business career path was there a moment where the the fears that you had initially sort of subsided and went away or was it just over time they never did because you know i i go out and i and i'll talk to students and 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 different things who are thinking about careers and business and all of that and and all the wonderful young um, LDS students that I've uh, interviewed and hired at different times um, you know to either work at different private equity firms that I've been a part of or things and and they'll ask me this question how do you balance your time hmm. Are the, or, and, and, they'll, and they'll say, and, and I'll ask them, well, why do you want to do this job? I wouldn't will Wall Street upon anybody. Yeah. You know, I said, you know, you understand you're not your own person all the time. And, uh, and, and, you're, and you're asked to, you know, you know, when I was literally working on Wall Street, you know, the people would just would go in seven days a week just for show i mean yeah yeah and, and i never i never did but um but but it's the world you get caught up in and and so i'd say how do you balance your time i didn't do it well mm. i mean i i was out of balance and you know i once gave a worldwide fireside to uh to the young adults right during COVID, right? And, and and I told the story of how I was called as a mission president. I called him mission president when, um, when Elder Ballard called me into his office. And he said, Lord wants you to go through a mission. I said, well, you you know what we're doing right now. We're, I mean, I'm, I'm the you know, chairman of the management committee of Bain Capital. I mean, you know, I'm managing this worldwide organization. And, uh, and, and, and he said, you know, I said, and we've got, a, you know, we're engaged in all this humanitarian work right now, and this might not be the best time. And that's when he said, so, I mean, you're either going to govern your life by covenant or by convenience. Mm. It's a question of faith. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, you really don't get it. And the Lord's calling you to save your life. And I realized, he said, he said, you're doing so many great things. And this is what can happen to anybody. You're doing so many great things, but you let your life get out of balance. You know, it's, it's the good, better, best uh, yeah. issue of uh, Fresno Oaks. And, and I, I had just not seen it. I mean, I felt it, but I, but you, when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you don't see it. And he saw the bigger picture, um, and 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 it was a great wake up call that that you know there there what what we call balance isn't like you you spend so many hours one day doing this this and this 
different things. You know, I'm going to read the scriptures for 30 minutes a day. I'm going to go exercise for 30 minutes a day. And then and I'm going to go work and then I'm going to come home and, you know, I'm married. I'm going to spend this much time. No, the world just does not work like that. Yeah. That's, I've noticed that too. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it doesn't. But what the world does work like is that there's times and seasons for certain things. I mean, anybody who's read the book Insights, you know, about President Nelson's life or, you know, knows that he was intensely required to be when he was an intern at the hospital all the time. Yeah. You know, yep. Away from his family and different things. And you, and you have to realize what your time and season is, but you also need to do the right things within that time and season. So, so yeah, you may be intensely engaged in work and it may be long extended hours, but when you're not there, it's just not all downtime. It's, it's, you've got to take care of other responsibilities and, and church college. And, and the most important thing that I ever learned, well, not most, but one of the key things I ever learned when I was at Harvard going to graduate school. I mean, I, I told you I got straight A's all the way through, but the first time I walked into, you know, graduate uh, level macro microeconomics at Harvard for sure, it was just an applied math course, general equilibrium theory. It was applied math. It was differential calculus at a level that I hadn't done before. Uh-huh. And, wow. uh, and, and I remember going into Mike Spence's micro class, uh, and Mike was the one who was, ended up being my thesis, uh, my program advisor and, and was the youngest economist in the world, you know, won the John Bates Clark, that's the best economist in the world under age 35 and youngest tenured professor at Harvard and go on to be Stanford business school dean and, and Nobel prize winner. And, and Mike started, he was, he, he couldn't speak English. All he could speak was math. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 he, and he gave his first lecture. I remember in Emerson Hall, it was, it was a, you know, a, a room with chalkboards all around every wall. And he just started with one mathematical equation after another. And, and he just started. And by the time he finished, it, it would be walking, like walking to Hugh Nibley lecture, not understanding a lot of stuff. Because Nibley was all scatterbrained all the time. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is what it felt like. And when he, when he stopped and the bell rang after the first lecture, I had understood, not understood one word. Oh, wow. And I realized I was in deep trouble. And, and, uh, and, and, and when Harvard it grades all on a curve and the whole idea of the first year is to kick out anybody that isn't up to snuff. And I was wondering, does this kid from University of Utah match up with all these guys from that did their undergraduates at Princeton or at the best schools in Europe or, or, or whatever. And, and I mean, I, I was with people who were, who were perfect scorers on their SATs that were perfect scorers, you know, and national merit scholars. It was just incredible group. And, and I remember my first exam, I failed. And not only did I fail, because of grade on curve, I was the last in the class. And I thought, I'm in trouble. Wow. And I said, well, what are you going to do? And this was my first lesson in balance. I was so scared and so fearful. I had buried myself in the libraries at, um, at Harvard. I was reading everything. But 
it's just because you read, it, you've got to understand. I wasn't understanding. And I, and I didn't know the language that I needed to know, which was really a better level of math, even though I'd taken it all. And so that was when I remember something Howard W. Hunter told me one day. He said, Bob, wherever you go, just do things the Lord's way. And, uh, and I looked at myself and I said, are you doing things the Lord's way? I wasn't. I mean, I was, I was, what, 25, 26 years old in graduate school, and, and I was on the high council in the Boston Stake. I was, my wife and I had been married, you know, uh, just a short period of time, but we had, we had twins that were born to us our first year of graduate school in November, just before Thanksgiving, and we had three children that were two years of age or younger that were in our house. And I'm a young father, unemployed student, you know, and, uh, wow. and, and, Daunting. and supposed to be on the council doing, you know, things. And I wasn't doing any of it well. And I remember praying to my heavenly father. And I heard this, this, remembered this admonition from how did we do things the Lord's way? And I said, well, what would the Lord do? He said he would never study on Sunday. He would dedicate the Sabbath. He would make sure he helped his wife with these young babies. He would have family prayer. Simple little things, pay your tithing, do all those things. And I just looked and I made sure in the midst of having to be intensely a student, that I did those simple things. Mm -hmm. And to me, that became balance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it changed everything. And, and, you know, we talk about the gift of tongues and everything, but I think the gift of tongues I got, as I changed and dedicated myself, I understood all of a sudden language that I needed to understand for graduate school. And, and by the time the finals rolled around, I mean, I, who had failed the class, got not only an A, but the highest score in the class. And it was a great testament to me with the Father. It wasn't anything I was done. It was to let me always know in the midst of all the chaos and everything that's going on, always try to do the simple and small things that the gospel asks you to do, which I call the Lord's way. And it may mean that you're working 12 hours a day sometimes, and not there, but you still can come home and have a prayer with your wife. You can yeah. still, even if it's not 30 minutes, even if it's one verse of scripture, yeah. you can read it and then say a prayer. Yeah. And and you can always keep the Sabbath. You know, Harvard's exams were always on Mondays. And I made that commitment never to study on Sunday, never to do anything. I became an expert getting up at 2.30 in the morning on Mondays <laughs> and preparing, you know, before I walked into exam rooms or things like that. And those are the types of things that I've learned yeah. going through school. Yeah. Yeah, that's so helpful. And it's sort of the theme, you know, even from the beginning of, uh, you know, the lesson your father taught you, just like following that, the, the spiritual prompting and guidance there is, um, r regardless of, I, I guess it goes back to this question of work-life balance. Like that's sort of the question that y young professionals are always, you know, hungry to hear how others did it. And, 
again, there's no formula other than simply being making space for that prayerful approach to life and making sure you're you're um, connecting with God and looking for His guidance on you know how how do I create this balance because you know there's probably some diversity in what oh there's diversity it'll be, it'll be yeah. different for everybody is yeah, what, exactly. what I believe yeah and, but, it, and, but it's it it's the striving to do it that that's the yeah. most important thing yeah and not forgetting about it and uh, and I panicked and forgot about it for a while. And, yeah, uh, as, as we know, all do. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great thing, you know. You you can you can you can always do better, and you can correct, and and then you can watch how Heavenly Father opens and unfolds blessings. Yeah, yep. Anything else about those? You know, just the the daunting um, task of being in school, especially at a competitive school like Harvard. Um, any other you know approaches or, or themes, principles come to mind? Just that would help students in that that stage of their life yeah I, I i did find something that's very important for all of us as we go through school um and it, it was a unusual circumstance i um and, and you know i went I, I i almost hesitate to to say this because everybody We'll go out and say, well, Elder Gay said he did this, and so I should do this. And <laughs> yeah. that isn't what I'm trying You're to say. You're not trying to be prescriptive here, right? <laughs> no, I'm not trying to be prescriptive. But one of the things I always found, don't ever minimize the power of fasting and prayer. Hmm. There was never an exam that I didn't fast and pray before I took that exam. There was never a paper I didn't fast and pray or There was, I always, I, Learned a great lesson just reading from John Witzel's life. Um, Witzel also attended Harvard, and he talked about uh, his thesis that he had to write. You know, he was a, um, uh, a chemist, biologist. Uh, I'm not a chemist, probably. Um, and he was, uh, and he said, "Where did he learn?" the lessons that he needed for his doctoral thesis on soil chemistry. He said he learned them in the temple. Oh, wow. That is a revelatory place. And I had the chance to interview uh, or to get to know a person who worked for my father uh, who had a double PhD, one from Caltech and, uh, and I think the other was UCLA. And, and I had this conversation with him. And he said, well, you know, I wrote a book. I wrote a thesis and book, and I was the first one to tell the world that earthquakes were waves. And he said that, uh, how did I learn that? He said, well, I was doing my thesis. I went to the temple every week in Los Angeles, and that's where I, that's where I prayed for guidance and revelation. Fasting, prayer, asking for revelation. The Lord will help you through temporal issues as well as spiritual issues is, is my whole point. I yeah. mean, I mean, it, it's true in business decisions, in investment decisions. I, I can't tell you how many times uh, and in private equity, I've made decisions to pull the trigger to do an investment um, where I've had nothing but a majority of people saying, don't do that. And, and, and it's always, always seeking that guidance. And, and sometimes it's, we do it, with a little extra effort 
and and things. That's just one thing that I <clears throat> that I that I learned. And mm-hmm. and the and the other thing that you have to learn is you have to learn to stand to be independent. Hmm. Um, you know the. Um, uh, I, I even working at the uh, with the church as a general authority. You know, we rolled out all the the programs for self reliance and uh, everything, and we were able to do that in a way that was very unusual. We did it without any announcement from the pulpit. We we rolled it and put it in 120 plus countries in the shortest amount of time. And and President Irene once said to me, Bob, you should be either dead, bloodied, or bruised, because nobody, <laughs> nobody has ever put anything that this extensive, that broad through the church in that short a period of time, which was about three years. Yeah. And he says, and he said to me, I know you're smart, but you're not that smart. <laughs> and he says, so the Lord was in it, right? So the Lord was in it. And that's what you have, want to always be doing, things that the Lord is in. If you're not giving that revelation, then think about what you're doing. Because yeah. the Lord will be in all your stuff if you're, you know, if you're doing what he wants you to do. And that could be from soil chemistry. That could be to earthquakes. That could be to self-reliance programs. That could be to private equity investments. And I, it's just something that, that you got to make sure the Lord's in it with you. Uh, and, 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 you know, as I look back, the Lord was in it with me for business for whatever reason. And I don't even fully understand all the reasons today, except for that. He probably knew that I would never treat the money that I was given as mine. Hmm. And, but everything that I ever want to do in my life from poverty relief to building these schools, as I said, you know, I was able to do because I listened to that voice and followed it. And yeah. The Lord was in it with me. And, yeah. and so those are the, I think important impressions that have come to me through my life. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And speaking of humanitarian work and the, the work that you've done there, um, you said early on, you sort of gained this perspective traveling with your father, um, yeah. seeing the poverty around the world, and that, that inspired you to do that. Um, I think, I, you know, most people, especially Latter-day Saints, you know, I think this is something that we're taught, you know, in our Christian-focused uh, faith of to be humanitarians and to help the poor and the needy and, and whatnot. And sometimes, just like in school, things get busy, you know, professions get busy, and you you think, well, maybe when I'm 75 and long retired, then I'll start writing those checks or whatnot. But what advice would you give as far as being a humanitarian in the midst of your professional life? Yeah, you know, it's funny how I really became engaged in this work. It was had very little to do with me. Um, it was my wife that uh, mm. that helped me here. And, and sometimes it's just good to have somebody who's a... Uh, companion or a friend who's uh who's your um that person that drags you a little bit you know uh into (laughs) it and i i we uh the only time free time i ever had you know when i was so intensely involved in the private equity world i mean that i ever felt that was a complete downtime was the week after christmas (laughs) And, and and all the other times, even during summer vacations, all this, the world's changed a little bit. But in my in, in the world that I worked in, it wasn't. I mean, it was a, it was every every day, every week almost. And 
And, uh, and so that time after Christmas, I just, that was the time I just separated from everything. And, and then my wife said to me, well, I want to take, uh, I want to take our family to Mexico uh, to go do some humanitarian work. And we and you know, here's a group that does it. And what do you think? I said, you can go to Mexico. I'm not going. I, this is this is this is my time. This is a sacred holy week, right? Yeah, <laughs> that was exactly right. It's sort of like you're going into your man cave and you're just sort of sitting there. But uh, um, and I and 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 she did, and she so she went, and uh, I stayed home, and then uh, uh, she didn't make me feel too guilty about it, but uh, but. Uh, but then the following year came up and she said, well, this year we're going to Africa. And, 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 uh, and she said, but this year you're coming. <laughs> and, 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 and I did. And, and we went and we had this incredible experience. That's, that's a, um, if this was right around the same time we started getting engaged in microcredit, we, we, um, we and we went to went out just on a humanitarian trip and to to do a health clinic to work in a health clinic to help in schooling. We built a cistern for collecting water in a little village called Mamba A and Mamba B uh, outside uh, Nairobi or uh, Mombasa, um, Kenya, and it was life transforming. Hmm. And there were great experiences that happened there. And, and that's what I just say, engage somewhere, you know, you don't have to have all this money. One of the, one of the things that my father also taught me was, you know, he was a paid, I said Hughes owned hundred percent of the stock. Anybody who wanted stock from Hughes, he fired him. And, oh, really? Uh, wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's how my dad became CEO because the former CEO thought that he should get some stock from Hughes and he pressed the, <laughs> the point. audacity, right? <laughs> yeah. He pressed the point and, and that was when, you know, he was gone. And, wow. uh, and so, so my dad was paid very well, but it wasn't a wealth building exercise. Uh -huh. And, but he, you know, he was, when Hughes died, you know, he, he left him as the, one of the key trustees of what was called the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is a multi-billion-dollar, you know, medical institute, and he brought 150 million dollars out to University of Utah through that institute. They brought Mario Capecchi, who won the Nobel Prize, to the U. Tried to bring it to BYU, but they didn't have a med school. And uh, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but but the but and he always said, you know, just look at where you have influence. And go use that influence. Yeah, we're mm. good. And 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 it may not be money. It may be somebody you know. I mean, I think of all the wonderful people who call me and say, you know, could you think about helping this organization, or could you be doing it? And 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 I think of how many things we have acted upon because of those telephone calls. Mm -hmm. and, and and we're the ones that will be more in the limelight, not that person who made the call. But that person is no different than me. Uh, and just because we have the money on it to do something, you know, we get the recognition. Whereas 
it, it, in the Lord's eyes, it's no different. Yeah. And so you engage where you have influence and you look at your skills, your talents, and, and it may be, I mean, t- this morning I traded text with a wonderful CEO from, um, from Provo, uh, from Provo Worm, uh, who's out and he's just completed a thousand cardiac eye surgeries over in Ghana over this last eight days. Oh, fantastic. And, and that's what I wrote him. I said, that, that's fantastic. I said, I'm headed to Ghana this, this, this weekend, too, to go over and do our things. And, and, and we're both out there just doing something. He's taken the company that he's built, and he's used it, you know, to do work in Ghana. And, and, I, and it doesn't always have to be, but it could be as simple as, you know, you volunteer, you know, to just help somewhere. And there's plenty of expeditions that go out for a week to 10 days just to, I mean, I've gone, you know, to the Amazon, you know, just to paint a school or an orphanage. You know, I took our missionaries. Think about this. The missionaries in Ghana, two-thirds of them were probably African all the time and one-third from other places in the world. They had always been the ones who had been recipient of aid. They always had the attitude, you know, we're, we're to receive. And we tried to teach them, no, you have to be the ones that give, no matter where you are in your life or what yeah. resources you have. And so we said, well, what can we do? And, and, and so we would go out to the orphanages, you know, on, uh, during the Christmas season or something. We'd build furniture or we'd, we, we, we even painted curbs. In, in Ghana, you know, just to to beautify the city. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people who never had anything, always had received things, say how great it was to be able to go out and do something. And you just look at where you're standing and give from what you have. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think often the feeling is, well, you know, I got to sell a company or two and, you know, have a, a good chunk of money in the bank and then I'll start writing those checks or, you know, I'm, what do I have to give? But I love to, just starting from that place of where do I have influence and I can give. And like you said, these CEOs of uh, nonprofits, I mean, that's my day job is I run a nonprofit and yeah. I've given my life to it, even though I, I haven't written a million yeah. dollar check, but I've given my life to it, really. So. Exactly, exactly. And that, that's really how it's meant to be. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's in this type of work, it's, you know, it's what the scriptures call, you know, you have need of the whole body. You need the eyes, you need the hands, you need the feet and, and, you know, and, and not everybody is the complete picture. And so you, so you bring in, you know, and find that team of people that all have different types of skills and different things that they can, they can add. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about uh, just church service. Uh, obviously this is a, a little bit related to humanitarian work. I mean, a service and you're called to do it. You're not paid and, and making time for it. You know, you talk about your time as a young high counselor um, yeah. going to, in, you know, in, in graduate school and whatnot. Um, what, what, any perspective you could share on just serving in the church while you uh, lead a busy professional life? Sure. You know, I, uh, I'll give you a couple different thoughts on that. One is that, uh, as I served as a general authority and went to state conferences all around the world, and it didn't matter where I went in the world, I would always talk to the state presidents about their uh, 
their biggest challenge. And always within the top three challenges they face would be one of apathy among those, quote, who were active members of the church. Mm, yeah. And those who didn't want to do callings, uh, those who felt certain callings were not important enough for them. Um, and, uh, and I always, and I, and I took a, a clip from, uh, the, uh, the people's choice awards that Adam Ashton Kutcher, Kutcher did uh -huh. was awarded, you know, uh, you know, many years ago. And one of the things he said, you know, He, he talked about, you know, life is work, and and I never had a job that wasn't good enough. And he talked about his times as dishwashers, as you know, as janitors, different things like that. It takes a lot of different things, and I remember, you know, the things that we've served at in the church, you know, from being an usher. You know, to mm -hmm. uh, uh, a greeter, to you know, my my wife, uh, you know, being a quarter. Neither of us sing. Neither of us have a, a musical talent to our to uh, <laughs> to our name. To you know, just sitting as a as a person that watched kids with autism, so their parents could go to sacrament meeting. You know, uh, that type of service. But the whole thing that we are called to do is to minister in a higher and holy way. And, and if we hear nothing from the prophet, that's one of his great things to do. And so no matter what we're doing, we need to be ministers. And, and that also is very different for different people. And it's, uh, and so, and we always think about a calling in the church. Well, it's, no, it's a calling for life uh, too. And it could be just a friend. It could be just, and they could have nothing to do with anything with the church. Just be engaged with somebody else's life. That's that's what we're really asked to do and to help people. Everybody's our brothers and sisters. And, uh, and so, you know, people say, well, what do you do since you've been released as general authority? I said, I do pretty much what I was doing as a general authority, except for I'm just in a different you know, I, I, I'm just in a different form. Yeah. But, but it's just being a minister. It's, it's being a help. And, and, and don't ever define yourself by a calling in the church or you're going to be pretty disappointed because except for, as we know, you know, a handful, every day somebody's going to say congratulations to you and then somebody's going to shake your hand and say thank you. And it's going to be that abrupt and that, that quick. You know, we, we actually... <laughs> are pretty good about calling people. We're not that great about releasing people. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and, but it's, it's, it's just, you know, you, 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 you do everything, but you have to look at your life and say, what is my, who am I as a person? And, and perhaps the greatest work we'll ever do as missionaries in the church will be among our own family members, mm -hmm. you know, and that will never show up as quote, as ward courser or, or bishop or, but it, you tell me what's more important. And, uh, it, you know, the greatest service may be just taking a name to the temple. Uh, I can't tell you how many deep spiritual experiences I've had 
in the temple with names. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, you never minimize these things and you never worry about what part of the vineyard the Lord's calling you to. Uh, and because it's not about you. Uh, and you got to make sure your life is not about you. That would be my, wherever you are, no matter what time you are in your life. And if it is, get off that track. Uh, I've had so many people at the times I've called people to be stake presidents. I've called people, interviewed people to think about being area seventies and And, and and people think, you know, that somehow they're not, you know, they, I don't know how to say this the right way, but they're, 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 they're not measuring up if they're not in those callings. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just like, you know, missionaries out there, if you're not a zone leader or you're not an assistant president, am I a good missionary? Yeah, you could be the very best missionary. I, I used to release missionaries that had served enormously well to go out and be junior companions for the last four or five months of their mission, just so missionaries understood it was never about positions. Yeah. It's about being a missionary. It's about being a minister. And, and that's my biggest takeaways from church service. Just do the things the Lord would have you do. And don't worry about what that is. And sometimes it's really important to be a greeter. And sometimes it's really important to just be a friend. Love it. Elder Yeah, this has been uh, fantastic and so insightful. I appreciate you being uh, so open and, and about your, your journey and the struggles and the spiritual insights and whatnot. Is there, um, I've got one more question for you, but any other insight story or concept you want to make sure we squeeze in here before we, we wrap up? Yeah. Could I just share one, one thing uh, yeah. with you? And it was something that President Irene taught me. Love it. So, as I said, we, you know, we rolled out the, the self-reliance program and um, myself and a small team of people at the church worked on it pretty in, intensely. But, but President Irene was our report point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one day when myself and uh, another member of our team, a dear friend, uh, were in with President Irene, giving a report back. He stopped to talk to us, um, and and the church had just gone through one of these periods where they had the senior leadership had just put out a policy statement that was controversial. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of pushback from outside and within. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, and as a member of the first presidency. You know, you you know the feedback. I mean, it's given. To, you know, it, people probably don't know that. I mean, we they share all the feedback that people give, and uh, and and you digest it, you read it, um, talk about it. But he said, he turned to me and he said, you know, I think I know you. And I I really believe I know you. And I wasn't quite sure where this was going. And then he said to me, "Um, uh, 
I want you to like me. Hmm. And I didn't say anything because I wasn't quite sure where that was going. He said, you know, I want people to like me. Um, but then he said, when I go home at night and I say my prayers, the Lord says to me, Hal, I don't need to have people to like you. I need you to do my will. And I think the most important thing that we need to do in our lives, always ask ourselves, are we doing the Lord's will? Are we doing things to have people like us or to agree with us? Yeah. And that's the great lesson of my life through business and through church. Just strive to do the Lord's will. And if we're not, repent and go and change and go do it and let your light shine. Well, Elder Gate, last question I have for you is um, if you were in a room full of MBA students, young professionals, what final advice would you give to them? I would say, enjoy your journey. Just uh, don't, uh, don't overstress, you know, uh, and don't try to do it all your own way or by yourself. Just trust the Lord. You'll, uh, and stay close to the Lord. He'll, he'll guide you, direct you, and you'll end up <clears throat> being a success. I gave a talk out of BYU, uh, I think 2002. And, uh, and I closed it with, with uh, something from LeGrand Richards who talked about what does it mean to be a success in life. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, being a success is to make sure you complete the mission you were sent here to do from your pre-mortal world. And, uh, and, and I think that all we have to do is make sure we're just staying on track. Um, and, and everybody's journey is going to be quite different. Everybody, not every, I don't even know how to say it. Don't, don't measure yourself by the world standards, you know, maybe, Maybe my good friend Clay Christensen said it best, you know, how do you measure yourself? Just measure yourself by whether you're doing things the Lord's way and doing his will. That's as I just talked about. I don't know what else to say, you know, enjoy it and just strive to do the best to, to trust in the Lord and, uh, and do things what he'd have you do, even if they don't make the most sense to you and made no sense to me going into business, but only in hindsight, not in, not in the moment. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.